Yeah, it's not an exaggeration. There's literally a line in there where the narrator says something like, Look how he holds his spoon. That's you, how you know he's the commander. Is it possible to learn this secret knowledge? <laughs> Welcome back to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. I have returned, my children. Finally. Thank <laughs> God Almighty he's back, everybody. We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurish best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now-dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're going to try anyway. And it's been a while since we've actually been trying, but we're back again, and we're worse than ever. So, George, who do we have this week? Well, I, I wish I could tell you, Aaron, but we're going to do something we've never done before. We're going to let the Luigi board decide who we cover. <laughs> the dark spirits of Italian plumbers must be appeased. <laughs> the Luigi board. And speaking of dark spirits, I could use a drink. Not to worry. I have everything prepared. I have a bottle of a <laughs> very fine scotch right here at hand. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> You know, it's been so long since we did a drunk episode. I mean, ever since Seamus requested one, I've been dying to do it, but the whole global crisis thing kept getting in the way a little bit, and I honestly can't believe we made it through the last months without doing one, because everything is so fucked. So it seems. So it seems. But, you know, at least we still have Hot Pockets and whiskey, or at least... I mean, I'm... This fine scotch, I will admit, I did buy it from... Possibly troubled individual behind the Dollar General, but he assured me that this was the best scotch that could be had anywhere in America or Scotland. So I know you seemed like a trustworthy type, so. Well, that's a welcome relief because the Hot Pockets alone haven't been cutting it lately. And I mean, I started cooking them in the oven instead of the microwave, and even that isn't helping anymore. Like last week, I made a Meat Lover's Hot Pocket sandwich, which is just two Hot Pockets and a honeyed ham smashed between two more Hot Pockets. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. it is important to take care of our health during this crisis. You know what? Bill Gates can fuck off with this whole obligated health shit. I plan to die happy within a few years. I will completely take death into my own hands. That is not a threat. <laughs> I, I was going to say, like, do we need to go off air and talk about this for a few minutes? <laughs> no, no, well, you, but you're required to be healthy now and be happy and live in the pod and eat the bugs. And right now you are required to do a backflip. <laughs> well then, in that case, how about we backflip down into the history lab and get this show rolling? Don't forget the scotch. Right. This week on We Talk About Dead People, the boys venture into the darkness to discover history so forgotten, so forbidden, and so woke that it will likely be completely erased by the sands of time. Or the press. Join us for a drunk talk about the elite space aliens and portals to the unknown. So, George, if you had to LARP as a historical character for a week, who would you LARP as, and what group of people would you attempt to trigger? 
Well, right now, I would LARP as myself, who was reading a text on my phone and not paying attention, and I've now been asked a question and put on a spot, which probably triggers you, because I don't have an answer. Um, oh. But hopefully, hopefully that has bought me enough time uh, to come up with another answer. So I think I would probably LARP as... I don't know, maybe just like a hard-working, God-fearing man, you know, killing his <laughs> field and feeding his cows or whatever, because that seems like all you have to be to trigger, well, half the planet at this point. So yeah, I'm just gonna LARP as a normal goddamn person. It'd be, it'd be nice for a change. Well, it would be nice, because you are not a normal person, and, uh... Fuck you. <laughs> uh... Anyway, well, and what about you? Uh, if you had to LARP as a historical character for a week, who would you LARP as, and what group of people would you attempt to trigger? Well, like you said, pretty much any historical figure these days is going to trigger people. So I think I'd probably go with, like, uh, uh, you know, somebody... Like, I'd just go high-key, like George Washington, put on a powdered mm. wig and walk around on the street. Ronald McDonald. Ronald McDonald. Well, I mean, what's the difference at this point? Because America just it's a, it's all about them them burgers, <laughs> but yeah, I would definitely LARP as George Washington, and I would attempt to trigger everybody because uh, this is this is the world in which we live. <laughs> oh God, we're gonna get banned so hard. Just kidding. Still thinking about gonna, those burgers, though. Yeah, not gonna put that energy out there. Just thinking about burgers. Did you hear the, right, mi well, the, mi the McRib is back? Oh Jesus! <laughs> it's coming. Was foretold. Oh god. I don't even want to know what they used to make that shit. It it can't be human or animal. It it has to be bugs. Anyway, so now that that segment has been duly covered, let's get out the Luigi board and find out who we're covering this week. Are you sure this is a good idea? <laughs> Come on, man. It's just it's just a board game. It can't be that spooky. All right, Luigi board, show us who oh, we'll be covering. Look, it, we can't do this. Look at that. It's missing the 10 millimeter wrench. The what? The, the 10 millimeter wrench from the oh, Luigi board. Oh, <clears throat> sorry. You know, wrenches for plumbing, and there's a running joke about the 10 millimeter wrench is always the one that's missing. Oh. <laughs> I think we hang I out on different that. parts of the internet. I, I was going to say, you <laughs> hang out with mechanics and shit. That just, that, that okay. just doesn't. <laughs> let's, yeah, let's, let's cut that. Let's, um, let's start back. I don't, I don't even want to cut that. That's just pretty funny. <laughs> All right, so <clears throat> in that case, let's get this uh, let's get this Luigi board out and uh, let's uh, see who we're covering. Are you sure this? No, it's a good idea. Trust me. Oh, okay, I, I just I, it's a little bit weird. I don't like change. I don't like change. I know. Neither does Luigi. That's why I never you know use the parking meters and always just you know park illegally. Oh God, there's so much noise downstairs. Do you hear that? Oh, I did hear that. Was that the wailing of the damned? Yeah, I'm in a party house right now. This is the best I can do, so apologies in advance for uh, any yelling you might hear. Just a bunch of woke people downstairs. I'm just kidding. Um, Alright, I'm gonna mark this. This is a shit show. Alright, 8.41, marking for shit show. Alright, <clears throat> first letter. Mm, it looks like an, uh, what's the, the handle of an umbrella? What's up? J, J, that's what it's called. J. Okay, okay, I would have said an L, but I think you're right. More umbrella. Uh-oh, it's going over to the A! Jit. 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 Oh, it's YA! Ja, German for yes. Maybe we're gonna get someone cool in German. Oh, oh, good. Um, 
I'm excited. Okay, now. okay. Oh, nope, nope, nope. M. Fuck. Oh, damn it. Jam, jam. jam. Like peanut butter and jam. Recovering Smuckers. <laughs> yes, recovering <laughs> Smuckers. Perfect. Perfect. Where's it going now? Okay, so here we go. Uh, E? Oh, shit. Oh, God. No, no, I'm not. I will not sit here and take this if this is spelling out James. Nonsense. <laughs> oh, 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 God, it's going for the S. Oh, no. D. James D. I, I cannot. No, no, this, this can't be happening right now. Ugh, absolutely <sighs> disgusting. Oh, f forget the Luigi board. Look at this. What the hell is that? I found it under my chair. I think it's a burrito, like a Burger King burrito, maybe. I'm going to need oh. to get my get my brush off and do some cleaning and document the find. But yeah, I think this I think this is a burrito and it seems to be from like the uh, two or three layers ago of the dirt. So that would be what, like a <laughs> year and a half. <laughs> yeah, I think two, two to three layers. That's about a year and a half. But. I'm just telling you, James must have left that behind. A Burger King burrito, that's him. And that had to be, like, what, 10 years ago now? At least, at least. But, you know, it it actually still looks like it might be good. Like, it seems... it Put it this way, it seems about as good as it ever was. And, you know, the they put all kinds of weird crap in the burritos these, day, these days. You know, weird things that give them eternal youth and are definitely not unhealthy and probably mentally subversive preservatives. So yeah, I'm pretty sure it's still good. And you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to try it right now. Oh, Jesus. Oh, you're worse than James. He would have at least washed it in the river first, like any self-respecting raccoon. Well, let me tell you what. It's good. In fact, it's not just good. It is delicious. This might be the best burrito I have ever eaten since the one that was slightly burnt that I dug up in Pompeii. I don't know what idiot at the Pompeii, at the Burger King in Pompeii burnt one, but this one was very much on the sort of ashy, crispy side. I don't think that was a burrito you dug up. Maybe. I mean, I guess it could have been a corn dog. It was hard to tell. But here, try this. All right, all right. Oh God, George, I don't feel so good. What are you What are you talking about, man? I feel like I'm tripping all of a sudden. Then, like, get up. Oh, uh, oh no, I think I think I'm feeling it too. I think I'm feeling this it. Supposed to, this was supposed to be a drunk episode, not a DMT with Joe Rogan episode. Oh God, what have we done? What if the Earth is actually a cube, like in Minecraft? Whoa. Whoa. Well, now that we're sufficiently high, should we get drunk too? Well, obviously. Okay, well, here's the sconch. Sconch? Look, I know it's scotch, but it kind of looks like a conch. In my mind, anyway, these are my, this is my perspective. It's sconch, get it? This is going to be a miserable experience, I can already tell. <laughs> Alright, in that case, computer, please bring up the most random person from history who did some shit that nobody cares about that we're gonna cover because it's a drunk show, and we're gonna do our thing, and it's gonna be great. <laughs> 
There we go. All right, George, since we're high and soon to be drunk, let's who, see. <laughs> Flubbing lines already, and I haven't had a drop of alcohol. Let's who. <laughs> Speak for let's yourself. Let's see. <laughs> let's see who we have to work with, and let's talk about what we are drinking for this drunkest sode. What have you got over there? I have a delightful new, or I don't know if it is new, but I've only just saw it, product from Tullamore Dew, which was my, uh, Tullamore Dew Irish whiskey was my go-to product in college to um, get drunk and cry and listen to music. So when I saw they'd released something new, I, I couldn't help it. But what we have is their Irish whiskey finished in Caribbean rum casks, and I quote, for sweet tropical notes. Oh, wow. Sweet tropical notes. Isn't that just like a you drink it and you hear steel drums? I mean, I'm hoping. I don't hear them yet, but by the end of the night, I mean, we'll see. Mm. Is that all you have? You're just sipping on straight scotch? Uh, I'm literally just drinking straight whiskey, yes. Yes, and over here I have a Pabst Blue Ribbon Extra to start with. Uh, because since I'm, I'm the one doing the coverage, I, I need to be at least decently coherent. Um, and I'm only drinking Press Pabst X because I got to doubt. <laughs> I'm only drinking Pabst uh, because I have a bunch of Milwaukee fools in town and they've brought they've brought the Pabst. And speaking of, I think I mentioned it before, but I, I, I'm at a little house party, so you might hear some people downstairs. Just think of it as a nice, comfortable house party that you're just joining with your ears, uh, dear listener. So I have that, and then I have uh, a modest glass of what's called monkey shoulder, and I, I haven't had that before, so... We'll see how that goes. What it's is scotch? Okay, it's a scotch. Yeah, it's a scotch. It is sounds it, like a rum, but it's a scotch. I was going to say, that sounds very rum-like. Is this one of those, like, $20 a gallon scotches? Uh, I have no idea. Somebody, I just walked into the house and somebody poured it and said, you have to drink this. And I said, okay. And strangely enough, it was it was uh, another dude named Aaron. So I said, we should start a podcast together and call it Running Aaron's. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> King, uh, of, no. King of comedy. Yeah, when I was at the liquor store picking this up um, with a friend who's visiting, a friend who also knows Aaron, um, it was great. We kind of we walked through the aisles in the liquor store just like identified, ah, yes, here is what Aaron would get when he was drunk and poor. Here's what Aaron would get when he had money. You know, here's what Aaron would get when he wanted to feel sophisticated. Like, yep, we, yep. we passed that, that new Amsterdam gin, man. Oh, oh, never again. Never again. I, I, leave, I leave it to you all to imagine which of the categories that one fell into. Yeah, well, I would I would like to say for the record that, uh, <laughs> yes, I had, a, I had a nasty phase with really cheap gin. Oh, <laughs> there was a, I think I said it before on the show, but I'll say it again because it's funny. But there's a line in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde where it's talking about Mr. Utterson. And it just says he drank he drank gin alone in his apartment, and I was like, "Me? <laughs> I mean, I'm I can neither confirm nor deny, but yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I remember those days. Good good time. Well, they weren't actually, but you you get the idea. All right, and uh, okay. So now that we've covered what we're what we're doing for this duly sponsored, Seamus sponsored drunkisode, uh. <laughs> And we've we've described what we're drinking. Let's talk about who we're talking about, which is Admiral Richard E. Byrd. Is honest question because I don't know the answer to this. Is he related to Senator Richard Byrd? I honestly have no idea. Um, the I have no idea. The reason I ask is because I was on a long drive. Uh, well, not long by my standards. I was on like a two hundred mile drive the other night, and my phone died a quarter of the way through. 
And so I'm like, well, fuck, how am I going to listen to my Mongolian throat singing now that I usually listen to while driving? <laughs> but so I'm digging around in the con, you know, I'm do- doing 100 on the highway, digging around like in the console, like got to have a CD in here somewhere. And what I find is Senator Robert Byrd's Mountain Fiddle Tunes, because apparently in addition to being like in the Senate for God only knows how long, like 50 years, the man also released a CD of fiddle music that he played. So that is what I listened to for two hours. Well, that'll do the trick when you can't get your, your uh, Tuva groove going. So yeah, I can recommend but. the uh, Senator Bird's Mountain Fiddle. Excellent album. Very good. High production value. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. He may be related, but he's probably not. I don't know. I'm going to need you to I'm on glass, rip that uh, CD. Glass 3, by the way. Oh my god! Okay, so I'm one sip of beer in, and you're on glass three, so I gotta, I gotta speed this up. But, okay, it's, you know, it's totally okay if you just sit over there and play with guns and vape and drink, and I'll just read the episode, and you can every now and then chime in with a... <laughs> of course, I'm, I'm assuming... I, I don't remember how high your tolerance is, but I have a pretty high tolerance, I will say. Yeah, no, I do too. We'll see. We'll mm. see. It may be tested. Limits will be yep. tested. We're going to push it to the limit, and that's why we're talking about Admiral Byrd. So, are you ready, sir? Oh, I have been ready for a while. I, I, I was going to try to say my whole life, but I really wasn't, so. <laughs> Three glasses in. Here we go. <laughs> Just getting started. The first time we did a drunk episode, we did a shot every time we did a section, um, which was pretty weak compared to, like, I, I guess what we could do now, but who knows. All right, so, <clears throat> Admiral Byrd's early life. So, just to start this off, in the appropriate schizophrenic tone I like to use when doing We Talk About Dead People, we must begin with Admiral Byrd's ancestry. Uh, And first off, I just realized that there's like a huge echo. I hope that doesn't come through. I don't don't hear it, so. Okay, it doesn't matter. I've I've recorded more echoey places than this. All right, let's talk about his ancestry. So, Richard Byrd was the son of Esther Bowling Flood and just another dude named Richard Byrd Sr., Richard Byrd Sr. was a descendant of what are known as the First Families of Virginia, which is just a fancy name for rich people who came to America from England after poor, usually fundamentalist Christian settlers had already already defeated the winter and the natives. So that's what the First Families of Virginia are. Unless you have a different take, you are from the East Coast. I mean, I'm... I'm yeah, that's not my world. You know. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm 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 from I'm from people who didn't even learn English until like the 1930s. We were the Pennsylvania Dutch. Oh, Pennsylvania Dutch. Oh. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's a that's a great tobacco you got out there, actually. Oh, you know it, man. All right. Oh yeah. But anyway, so Richard Byrd wasn't just the descendant of some rando first family of Virginia. He was a descendant of a person known as John Rolfe, better known as John Smith, and uh, Pocahontas. So we got that going on, wait, which is kind of weird. Yes, literally. Oh. Well, damn. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I, my uh, ears are peeled for more details. Yeah, we're gonna paint with all the colors of the wind or space. You the, might say the, the corn, space wind. Oh, the corn chip moon or whatever that song is. I have no idea what the hell you're referencing. Anyway, so the Junior blue was corn born. moon. That's it from the song from uh, from Pocahontas that you referenced. The blue corn moon. But I kept wanting oh, to say right, the, the blue the, corn moon. the corn chip moon. All right, we're talking about Disney now. Um, so let's get back to uh, 
I don't want to talk about Pocahontas, okay? I want to talk about aliens. We gotta get to the aliens. Because <laughs> everyone knows Richard Bird's all about them aliens. Let me make a note of this. A note of what? The Pocahontas alien connection. There might be something. Oh, yeah. De definitely want to Google that later. Anyway, so... Uh, Richard Bird Jr. was born on October 25th, 1888. Illuminati confirmed. Take a shot. In Winchester. What? Take a shot. Do I have to take a shot every time I say Illuminati confirmed? I haven't read through your script, so you tell me, is that going to be a problem? No, it's not going to be a problem. Are I'm you gonna, sure? I'm going to take a shot. Yep, yep. Okay. I'm taking your word right, for this. I'm not, I'm not control F and searching how many times the phrase Illuminati confirmed don't, appears. Don't. <laughs> Don't do it. I'm going to be blasted by the end of this, but I like this rule. So, yes, he was born in 1888 in Winchester, Virginia. There is limited information on his childhood on Wikipedia, meaning he probably just did typical American shit growing up, um, like growing his own food and not trusting the government. Um, or, you know, any number of things. But anyway, his childhood is not well, well documented. I did not just look on Wikipedia. I promise you that. But the first major thing he did with his life was to go to college. Big mistake. But it wasn't... Yeah, I know. Yeah, but the thing is, it wasn't just any college. Richard Byrd went to the Virginia Military Institute, which was expensive, luxurious, etc. This extravagant college experience ended up with Byrd downgrading to the University of Virginia for a year. Disgusting. But that was also, yeah, I know, that was also too expensive. Even back then, when it cost like $2 per semester or so. Anyway, so due to these financial woes, Byrd ended up in the United States Naval Academy, which was cheaper, easier, and as the joke goes about the modern Navy, way gayer. Um, but he did well there and was appointed midshipman at 20 years of age on May 28th, 1908. That didn't prevent him from fucking up his ankle during gymnastics class, which would eventually result in his early naval retirement later on in 1916. I'm already triggered by this. I know. You fucked up your aggle. I remember that. I, it was it was bad, man. And you know... I, no, it was Jameson, not Tullamore Dew, that was involved. So, okay, we're good. We're good. We're fine. T Keep Tullamore, going. Tullamore Dew is a gentler master. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so you may have noticed that we're in the early 1900s, which means we have a couple of world wars to look forward to. Of course, with a fucked up aggle, you can't expect a man to storm the beaches of Normandy or hold the Alsace-Lorraine. But that's uh, pretty convenient for Bird. He's never going to have to see combat. But that doesn't mean he won't have a life without struggle. You will see. So in 1912, Byrd graduated and earned a commission as an ensign in the U.S. Navy. I, th I think it's pronounced ensign. Shut up. <laughs> I'm going to be honest, ensign. I don't actually know what an ensign does. I, I don't know either. I was just writing shit down. Let's Google it. <laughs> We're already way off track. Thanks, Seamus. You only have yourself to blame. Ensign. Ensign. It is ensign. Where did I, where did I get ensign? Ensign. Ensign. It's from French. It's from Insignia. Latin. Oh, so is it like a spanner bearer person? Yes. Yes, that's what it is. <laughs> Weak. Lame. Yeah, I know. Not, a, so not, anyway, as cool, not as cool as the real word for banner carrier, which is Aquila Fair, because the Roman military banners all had an eagle on top, so Aquila Fair literally means the eagle carrier. That's pretty badass, not gonna lie. <laughs> so anyway... Let, we're, we're way off track. We keep getting on these on these monkey shoulder rabbit trails or something like that. So anyway, he was also assigned to the ship, the USS Wyoming. Okay, now why the, Wyoming, the fuck would you name a ship after Wyoming? I can't think Had of reason. Had they been to Wyoming? Never, Had they been to Wyoming? Like, probably. It's not really I mean, a shippy kind of place. 
Well, I guess... Okay, keep going, true. keep going. Good Whatever. point, good point. I was just going to say, we're never going to get through this episode if we keep stopping for this shit. So speaking of the Wyoming, which was a ship, whether you like it or not, the Wyoming was primarily an escort battleship and was tasked throughout the World Wars with guiding civilian ships to and from Norway. The Wyoming was a sort of legendary kind of ship, and it was legendary for all the wrong reasons, mainly that it had a really paranoid crew... They would often report U-boats um, and fire at the open sea when there were no targets actually available. Um, and hilariously, just to add insult to injury, the Wyoming would actually collide with an unsighted U-boat <laughs> during World War I and uh, sink. So <laughs> we can forgive the paranoid crew, I suppose, but they weren't quite paranoid enough because they ended up crashing into the thing. Ah, uh, yes, the boat that cried U-boat. <laughs> So Bird was moved off this ship pretty quickly and was assigned to the USS Mississippi and a gunboat known as the Dolphin. These were high-grade boats and were frequently used by then-Assistant Secretary of the Navy, none other than Franklin D. Roosevelt. Mm. And, yeah, I know. Bird would become friends with this man, who would, of course, go on to do nothing at all. Um, we'll never hear from... Nothing good, anyway. Well, I mean... It's debatable. You need to cover that guy. I mean, you gotta justify the hate. The world is not so, ready for the things I have to say about that bastard. <laughs> that might be the next drug episode. Anyway, it would seem that the jig was up for Bird as his gymnast ways finally caught up with him. In an undisclosed event, Bird injured his already injured foot aboard the Dolphin and was medically retired. But this retirement was in name only, because the result of it was that he was promoted to lieutenant and given a soft job as a teacher at the Naval Academy. And because we were originally going to do this in the old structure, but we decided not to, that's where we're going to end because with that. Because Aaron Birds. went, like, full, full deep dive on this and ended up writing, like, 400 pages of script about this guy, and we decided that we probably wouldn't make it to the end of a five-hour drunk episode. <laughs> It's true. We would probably pass out before we even finished it, especially with all the Illuminati confirmed shots I'm going to be taking here in a bit. Anyway, so you may be asking, why the hell are we talking about this do-nothing Navy guy? Well, I said something about aliens, but he's got some also other weird, really strange, interesting stuff in his later life. Um, and I need to be way drunker to talk about all of it, so uh, it's going to get incredibly weird, everybody. Just trust me. And here's where we'd say, all right, George, tell us about whoever the fuck's early life. And then we'd talk about that for a bit. And then we'd come back and I'd say, we're at Admiral Byrd's adult life. We're at Admiral Byrd's adult life now. All right. All right. So <clears throat> I'm going to get a little PBR here Ugh. before we start. Ah, delicious. Okay, it's not that good. <laughs> so far. Nothing too interesting has happened with Richard Byrd. He's been a Navy guy, uh, trolling around the ocean in large boats and hanging with President Roosevelt when he can. He's also technically retired, but let's not forget. Um, uh, that. But that doesn't stop him from serving as a retired officer on active duty it, when World War I rolls around, and I have no idea how that works, but here we go. I'm not a military man. Wish I could explain it, but I, I can't. So anyway, Bird's interests evolved a bit during the war, and as his name would suggest, he began to dream of flight. Because uh, Bird. Um, <laughs> no longer content with just floating about on the water like a duck, he took to the skies like a real bird and earned his pilot wings in the August of 1917. Which does not bode well. <laughs> um, did he... Nonetheless... Did he do any what? aerial combat? No, obviously. No. He's retired. But... No. Serving. But I don't know. Anyway, so... His actual job with the Navy... Um... um 
His, I'm sorry, his actual job was still with the Navy, even though he was a pilot at this point, but uh, at this time there wasn't actually a United States Air Force. It was a bit complicated. Um, as you may know, flight was at uh, that time in its early stages, and one might classify it as a young technology. And as such, nobody knew really where to put it. They didn't know where it was going to go. Because it was just like, oh, we can fly now. And it's like, well, up till now we've had, like, foot soldiers, horses, and boats, and that's it. But now you're in the sky. Like, we don't have a bird division. But we will soon. <laughs> anyway. So during World War I, airborne combat technology belonged to what was known as the Signal Corps. The Signal Corps was an archaic communications section of the military bearing a name born of flag signals used during the American Civil War. In World War I, it evolved with the incredibly disruptive technology known as the telegraph, but it also adopted other communication technologies such as signal balloons, planes, and eventually radios. Um, and I think the Signal Corps still uh, exists today as a communications division. Uh, maybe. I really don't know. It might have been merged. They just merge shit all the time. Um, but anyway, because of this aviary disruption, this Signal Corps was the only section of the military that had any a uh, significant holding on any airborne technology. Um, this is why it was converged into the American Navy, eventually creating what was called the Aeronautical Division. But for the time being, nobody really knew what to do with flight technology except strap guns to biplanes and pray it worked. <laughs> so, yeah, Bird's definitely a pioneer in this area. His, his name, he really lives up to his name, I will say. So anyway, <clears throat> Richard Bird, how many glasses are you in by now? I can neither confirm nor deny... That we're, uh, we're on to number four. Good. All right. <clears throat> so Richard Byrd uh, served as secretary and organizer of the Navy Department Commission on training camps in order to teach young recruits the art of flight. And at this time, uh, as we briefly mentioned in our Charles Lindbergh episode, which was a banger, you should go back and listen to it, um, flight was largely viewed as a status symbol. Um Airships and planes dominated pop culture, and simply being a pilot back then basically gave whoever had the luck, money, or influence required to become a pilot, um, basically gave all of those types with high status a free hand to do whatever they wanted. Um, so all they had to do was just jump in a plane and they were, you know, even cooler than they were before. It's it's sort of like uh, celebrities with auto-tune. At first one did it and everyone's like, they're auto-tuning, and then everyone's like, I guess all, we're all auto-tuning now, and now we have no singers, so... Sort of like we have no pilots now. <laughs> so anyway, in the early days of flight, celebrities, royalty, and other elites would often procure very fancy planes and go on tour around their native countries and maybe sometimes abroad just to show off their gadgets. Um, daring and usually uh, war veteran lower classes would frequently pioneer new international flight routes with uh, dangerous and untested technology to little fanfare or press coverage, only to have some elite dumb fuck with money follow just behind them and claim that the flight, the, the first flight was in fact theirs. And it's such a common thing in history, it's just kind of silly because Charles Lindbergh himself is one, you know, merely one example we have of this phenomenon. Have you heard of this? Um, no, I mean, I certainly have heard of Charles Lindbergh. Okay. Yeah, it was a big thing. Like, you would just get a plane, and you, so, like, movies will feature this. So, like, in the King's Speech, the, the false king who gives up the throne or whatever, he's, like, flying around in his little plane and, you know, bitching about his American wife, as one does. <laughs> that, was a, that was a terrible idea, I'm just gonna say it. Like, it was a bad no. idea, man. It, it could have gone a lot better. Let's just put it that way. So, naturally, national aviation tours grew into international aviation tours, and if you couldn't cross the Atlantic in your airship and pla or plane, you were basically a caveman. 
So understand that when I say Richard Byrd was a technically retired trainer in the aeronautical section of the Navy during World War I, it really means that he was rather important. It also means that he was hobnobbing with a lot of elites in his spare time because they wanted to know how to fly and he could show them. So he was assigned to Aviation Ground School in Pensacola during the war and took uh, command of the Air Force based in Halifax all the way up to the end of World War I and not the Air Force base, the Air Force that was based in Halifax. I know that's not clear, but again, I'm about half a beer in, and I'm already completely flying, so here we go. <laughs> flying. <laughs> ha! Um, so after the war, Bird was assigned the job of finding an optimal flight path for a military transatlantic crossing using flying boats um, of the Howard Hughes variety. So of the three attempts his team would make, only one would actually succeed. And this success was unfortunately to be eclipsed in the space of two weeks... Uh, when John Alcock and Arthur Brown technically made the first non-stop transatlantic flight. And I say technically they made it because here's a picture of Alcock and Brown landing their plane in Ireland. So I'm guessing it's not supposed to be sticking up out of the ground like that, sort of like it's, you, a, like you, it's a dart that was thrown in Ireland. Yes, you would be correct. And time is not linear, so this is a picture of us at the end of the episode. <laughs> Because this is this crash here is the result of Alcock and Brown literally drinking whiskey during the whole flight. Those were the days, weren't they? Yep. <laughs> they were. Yeah. Th there's a great story about it you, with our Charles Lindbergh episode. They um they were drinking whiskey and like climbing out on the wings to like break ice off the propellers, and it it was absolutely insane that they actually made it. So anyway, with these drunk pilots overshadowing his accomplishments, Byrd decided to take this whole flight thing to the next level of consciousness. That's right, in 1925, Richard Byrd turned his eyes to the most forbidden of places on planet Earth. Where do you think that is? Cleveland. No. <laughs> Close. Uh. It's actually the, uh, the Arctic Poles. Oh, ho, ho. Mm -hmm. If this does not take like an H.P. Lovecraft Mountains of Madness turn, I'm going to be very disappointed. You're not going to be disappointed, trust me. It's gonna, it's it's it gets fucking weird. Now, so everyone asks, like, what happens here? What happens at the Arctic Poles? Well, if you're a subscriber like I am to the Santa Earth theory, um, you know that the North Pole is where Saint Nicholas lives with his elves and brings joy and plastic toys to all the world's children and soy boys. But if you're not a Santa Elf, uh, Santa Earth, Santa Elf, Santa Earth believer, you probably understand that the Arctic Poles are really just icy places with nothing at all interesting going on. That's there. what they nothing want you all. to think. I'm, I, sir. I'm talking about elite people flying to the poles. Yes. So there's nothing interesting at all going on in the Arctic Poles, as they would have us believe. But it turns out that uh, a bird. A bird named Richard Byrd thought otherwise, and so did a man named Donald Baxter McMillan. Um, Donald Baxter McMillan was a high school teacher turned Arctic explorer. And now I know what you're thinking. Aaron, a high school teacher became an Arctic explorer? The answer to that, as far as we know, is yes. I was going to say he was probably a fake identity invented by the CIA, but I don't think the CIA existed, did it? Uh, not yet, but, you know, there always was the Egyptian elite that, you know, has been controlling everything since they became friends with the aliens, so there's that. Anyway, so, Macmillan had always been interested in Arctic exploration, even when he was a high school teacher. So, uh, when an interest notice went out for an expedition led by an explorer named Robert Peary, he signed right up. 
Now, if you're, <laughs> this is why I don't use a Wikipedia. If you ever, if you were reading the Wikipedia article on this man, you would have read that the only reason he got onto the crew was that he was a, a hero at sea who had saved a bunch of people at once. High school teacher, sea hero. Um, but unfortunately for you, Wikipedia is only getting worse these days. Hilariously, the only source that Wikipedia links to this story about him saving a bunch of people, stating it as fact, comes from an adventure book for children. Uh, again, literally the only source that Wikipedia cited on this event. Um, what's more likely is that Millen always wanted to prove uh, Flat Earth by reaching the ice wall and saw a flyer for an expedition and signed up, allegedly. I, I really don't know. <laughs> I buy it. Much more likely. <laughs> so anyway, Macmillan would go on many voyages to the Arctic, including one that did involve Richard Bird. The expedition took place in 1925 and would pioneer Arctic exploration by being among the first to actually use aircraft with Richard Bird in command of the aviation unit. It worked well enough to convince Bird to use airplanes in almost all of his following expeditions. Almost all. He just, had other expeditions. Just like the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, wait, what? Please explain. I'm gonna drink some PBR. Oh, they they bring they bring reconnaissance planes with them, so they sail there and then they launch their little reconnaissance planes to fly around. What does that have to do with Mountains of Madness? That's the that's that's the story. The Mountains of Madness that identified that planes were the best way to explore the Arctic. Ah, okay. Well, I was I was asking like literally, what did they have to do with Mountains and Madness? But uh, but uh, that was not a well delivered joke. But Jokes aside, Bird believed that the best plane for this job of exploring the North Pole was the Fulker F-7A, which was a tri-motor airplane. And this plane was basically the 747 of the day, which means it was extremely popular as a, as a transport plane. In the 20s, it was very hardy as it was made of metal instead of balsa wood and craft glue like most planes of the time. Bird's Fulker was named the Josephine Ford after Henry Ford's daughter, Josephine, who helped fund the flight to the North Pole. The financial elite, they just want to go to Antarctica. Also, let's just point out that uh, this American is, of course, re returning to the gold standard of German technical engineering. Uh, wh what? <laughs> the plane, Fokker. Does, oh, does the Fokker, yeah. Those are German planes. Yeah, yeah, I actually knew that. Um, I, I know things about planes. I played combat flight simulator in grade school. My favorite plane was the Falk Wolf. <laughs> I, I don't even know if that's how you pronounce it, but it was awesome. And I, I came to find out later in my sad life that there actually aren't any more of those left around, which is too bad. But we well, do have wait, Spitfires. Really? Uh, yeah, I think there's there was like one and they blew it up for Dunkirk or something. Uh, or at least they were talking about doing I it. Am for, <laughs> I am. Wow. This calls for a I'm drink. Just, yeah, I, I don't I don't know. I don't know. But they didn't blow up all the Spitfires. I, I actually saw one at a, at a flight show, which... It was awesome. It sounded just I, like the movies. I don't care. That's like the Honda Civic of World War One flight planes. I don't, I don't oh, give a fuck. Oh, come on! Well, okay, well, we gotta Google it then. Alright, fuck. What was it, the 42? 44? 44. Oh, look. There's one here on a YouTube video. I was wrong. Ha 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 ha. Ha ha ha. Well, uh, can't untake that drink, but you know. Yep. <laughs> anyway, so enough about German engineering. Let's talk about planes uh, and flying to the North Pole. So piloting the plane alongside Bird, who was the navigator, was an American named Floyd Bennett, a former mechanic who enlisted and flew missions during World War One. 
The adventure to, uh, to prove Flat Earth began at the airstrip in Svalbard, and the plan was simple. Take off, fly over 1,500 miles northward to the pole, buzz around in circles for literally 13 minutes, Freemasonry confirmed. I'll take a shot. Uh, and return to the port of origin. This they allegedly did, making them the first men to reach the t North Pole by air, only a few days before Roald Amundsen. Amundsen? Amundsen, I don't know. Would do the same in a Zeppelin, allegedly. Um, so yeah, I mean, he didn't really out... Go ahead. That, that honestly sounds more fun, the Zeppelin. Oh, dude, it was badass. I was reading about it. They they were... It was basically like a Viking launch, longship in the air. Like, everybody on board was like a Viking heritage, and they were like throwing things out to make sure that they got the right uh, elevation, that they could make it all the way. It's a crazy story. I actually had to leave it out um, because I was writing too much. Sad. But anyway, I keep... Yeah, I know. I need to take a shot for that Freemasonry confirm, though. Ah, uh, monkey shoulder. All right. Oh, that went down smooth. <laughs> so I keep saying allegedly because all of these claims are all very, very dubious. Uh, I will focus on bird's flight because that's the subject at hand. But all these accounts of reaching the North Pole by air read like adventure novels and elite LARPs because that's usually what they are. Because, like I said earlier, it's usually just like some really, really scrappy pilot in a shitty plane who does these things first, and then the elites come behind in their fancy planes and they suck up all the press. So anyway, without any kind of verification that Bird and Floyd Bennett had reached the pole, and let's be honest, honestly, how could you verify such a thing at that time, since I mean, they I, were the only ones going? I guess you can't really send a selfie back from Santa's workshop, can you? No, not really. There's no Instagram. It was like... It was, like, weak gram. Wow. You know, it's amazing that people actually, like, strove and struggled and accomplished things when they couldn't post about it on fucking Instagram, isn't it? Oh, man. Oh, man. You are four glasses in. <laughs> the salt is starting to come out. So, anyway. They did this. They reached... They allegedly reached the pole. And for this, they were awarded the Medal of Honor. Both Floyd and, and Bird. So anyway, one famous Norwegian... Well, that'll come up later. So one famous Norwegian explorer, uh, Bernt Balchen, claimed that Bennett told him in confidence that he and Bird had not reached the pole and had simply flown out of view and buzzed around for several hours before coming home and announcing their victory over nature. So the party is getting heated downstairs. My apologies. <clears throat> Conveniently, as these allegations came to light, Floyd Bennett would be, less, uh, would be dead in less than two years after alleging that they had made the whole fucking thing up. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder. Hmm. Sorry. Did, did he kill himself in a New York State prison by any chance? I think he died in a plane crash. Floyd Bennett did not kill himself. <laughs> they all die in plane crashes. All right. Anyway, so nonetheless, Bird would go to his death defending his claim of having flown over the North Pole and all that. But in 1996, his official flight log was released. Experts hypothesized from recorded sextant readings that Bird had made um, that he had only made it about 80% of the way to the pole before turning back. And these claims, these counterclaims, are also dubious. But again, Bird still got the Medal of Honor, and Congress also passed a special action, uh, December 21st, 1926, to promote him to the rank of commander, which I didn't even know you could do. Um, but I guess, okay, it's Congress. They used to do things, apparently. Aside from, you know, bilk the American people. <laughs> oh, that PBR is going down good. 
Anyway, so the very next year in 1927, Commander Byrd and Floyd Bennett decided to try to capture the Ortigue Prize, Ortig or Tig, I don't know, Ortigue Prize, for the world's first transatlantic flight, competing with none other than Charles Lindbergh, Byrd's plane, another Falker trimotor, called literally America, <laughs> crashed on a practice run. <laughs> so I guess you could say the American experiment has failed. <laughs> so it seems. Yeah. So Floyd was hurt badly, delaying a reattempt just long enough for Lindbergh to win the race and the coveted Ortigue Prize. Lindbergh's victory, however, did not stop Commander Byrd from finally attempting this transatlantic flight, whether or not it would be the first. So with a fresh crew, Byrd took off from New York and made it all the way to Paris in one go. Unfortunately, cloud cover was too bad to make a proper landing, so they wandered over to Normandy and crashed on the beach. And I'm not sure Commander Byrd ever landed a plane without crashing it, but... All, you know, all bets are off. <laughs> So, despite this now typical ending to Richard Bird's flight, or the Rich Bird's flight, uh, the entire flight crew won the Distinguished Flying Cross. So that's the Medal of Honor and the Distinguished Flying Cross for doing things that kind of failed. Are you following? And that other people had kind of already done. Yes. Gotcha. <laughs> so he's been hobnobbing, hobnobbing with the right Roosevelts, if you know what I mean. So on returned, uh, well, okay, I don't want to give him too much shit because he did write a book that I did I did look through a little bit, but uh, which was kind of inspiring. Then I found out it was ghostwritten, as these things are. Anyway, so on his return to the U.S. of A, uh, the Rich Bird would write an article for the August 1927 edition of Popular Science, where he basically stated that it would be another 20 years before transatlantic flights would become commercialized. He was pretty wrong about this because transatlantic flights started to really become a very common thing, as far as I know, at least in the 40s. Um, but anyway, so the very next year, Rich Bird would organize his very own expedition to Antarctica. This expedition would involve three planes and two ships. The planes were called the Floyd Bennett, after his late friend who was probably killed by Hillary Clinton's well, Hillary Clinton, she's, you know, 10,000 years old. Uh, the other plane was called, the other planes were called uh, the Stars and Stripes. <laughs> this is very patriotic. I know. And the last one was called Virginia after his home state. So the flagship of this adventure was called the City of New York. <laughs> Look, you can't make this shit up. Of course, the City of New York sounds like it could sink at any moment due to coronavirus. Anyway, oh man, I need a little more PBR for this. These jokes are getting dank. I apologize. So anyway, this ship was a Norwegian seal hunting vessel that had famously been close enough to do a rescue when the Titanic sank 15 years earlier. So there's nothing suspicious going on here. Um, Interesting. These really weird coincidences, you know, just very strange coincidences. I, I have no way to explain them. So anyway, the expedition set up base camp on the Ross Ice Shelf, and they named it Little America, because nationalism. <laughs> so the ex- wasn't it a fun- wasn't it a fun time when the elite, like, liked people, and they didn't just want to kill them? <laughs> anyway, so, the expedition was allegedly motivated by scientific interests, because there's nothing the elite like more than learning. <laughs> um... 
So when they were conducting photographic and geological surveys, yeah, they were definitely not mapping out where they would build the bunkers. They're always flying to after presidential elections. Of course, they weren't designing roadways into the hollow earth or learning to build stargates or contact the evil archons that have since enslaved the planet. They were just learning about science and things. Nothing nothing weird going just, on in Antarctica. Just taking pieces of ice and researching the shit out of them or something. Yeah, they're, they're just putting them under a microscope. Um, ah, yes, the ice here is made out of ice. <laughs> Allegedly, the, uh, the the things that they were surveying was like geology, um, geography, mountainsides, you know, like uh, they were looking at the stars a lot because it was really clear down there. Um, but like... Ah, uh, yes, they, and that, didn't, that, they didn't yet have the uh, galactic Pepsi billboards that we will soon <laughs> be subjected to. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, no, at, th at this stage, it, it really, it, it's plausible. That's what that's what they were doing, but you'll see at a later stage that that doesn't make sense anymore. So anyway, in 1929, uh, Richard Byrd took his plane to the South Pole on a historic flight to be the first aviator to reach the South Pole. Because if he couldn't have the North, he was going for the South. Uh, the flight was fraught with danger, and Commander Byrd had to jettison all of his spare gas tanks and emergency supplies in order to finish the mission. But it was, after all, a successful flight, and as a result of his success, Byrd was promoted again by a special act of Congress to the rank of Rear Admiral again on the 21st of December 1929. Now, the last time it was the 21st, hmm, I'm not going to say it, I'm not going to say it. Um, but he was 41 when this happened, which made him the youngest admiral in the history of the United States, which, you know, nothing to see here. So in 1930, the expedition to Antarctica came to a close, and the city of New York made the voyage home, presumably back to New York. Um, obviously, this whole expedition was filmed, and the film was compiled into a feature-length movie called With Bird at the South Pole, which there's too many innuendos in that name for me to even start. Um, so I watched this movie for this episode, and it's a fascinating little bit of propaganda, and it's actually a great movie um, if you like silent films. Mostly silent films. I mean, it's, Ant other it's Antarctica. It's probably not that loud. Yeah, well, I mean, it's windy and there's penguins and things, I guess. So anyway, among other things, this film depicts Bird and his men making their initial voyage, setting up base camp, building shelters uh, for the aircraft, and, of course, lots and lots of sled dogs. Um, my favorite parts of the movie involved all of the survival elements. It was kind of fun watching people, like, cook in sub-zero... Temperatures, do their laundry, take baths, operate radios, um, all in sub-zero temperatures. There's a bit in the movie about um, beard trimming, which was, and eyebrow trimming, um, because it was so cold, like, ice would immediately form on your beard and eyebrows and, like, form icicles on your face so you couldn't see anything or even talk. <laughs> so there's a, there's a little film strip in there of them, of a bunch of guys, like, forcing a guy down onto a table and, like, using hand clippers to trim his beard. <laughs> <laughs> which I can't think of anything more violating than that um, but anyway so there's a, even a section of the film which I, I recommend watching it because it's kind of it's the whole thing is pretty interesting and kind of hilarious but there's a section of the film where they sh they're literally like breeding new sled dogs so there's like a newborn litter of like husky puppies being lined up in front of a tiny sledge as if they're going to pull it and, like, the guys are just joking around, like, putting these puppies there. It's really funny. But there's also this uh, hilarious part where the uh, the literal dog mom, like, comes over and picks up each of them with her mouth and then hides them away from the explorers. <laughs> Which is just adorable. There's no other way to describe that. 
But the funniest thing about this movie is, again, how patriotic it is. And watching a piece of media that has, uh, like, national interest, nationalism, jingoism, whatever you want to call it, um, in mind, it's honestly kind of jarring at this point in American history. Um, but it's also kind of, like, endearing, I guess, in a way. It's like, oh, you remember a time when, like, America was, like, kind of cool with itself and didn't want to burn itself down? And, yeah, well... Here we are. Anyway, so throughout the film, at important events, there are traditional patriotic songs that play as these little celebratory title cards come up. And also, a narrator just sort of shows up in the last third of the movie to explain just what the fuck is going on and to randomly compliment Commander Bird for how he holds his spoon. Wait, what? Yeah, it's not an exaggeration. There's literally a line in there where the narrator says something like, Look how he holds his spoon. That's you. how you know he's the commander. Is it possible to learn this secret knowledge? <laughs> Just watch the video. It's right there on tape. Um, so, despite being an expert spoon holder, Bird was unfulfilled with this mission, even though he made it to the South Pole, and there's like a video of him dropping a little flag outside of the plane with a rock attached to it. But he was still he was still unfulfilled. Um, because according to him, even after even reaching the South Pole had not scratched his explorer's itch. He described the brief portion of his life after returning from Antarctica as aimless. It was during this period that he would resolve to go back to the land of ice and do another thing that no man had done before. He would spend a winter alone in a meteorological station. Officially to do science, but unofficially in his words to go for the experience's sake. So, he's a he's a thrill seeker, I guess now. <laughs> I mean, that's better than the things people do for experience's sake now where they like try to backpack across some like really dangerous part of the world and end up getting murdered, so. Mm. This is true. But uh, this is how the elite used to conduct themselves. They would just do fun things like visiting the poles. And then when they discovered the Stargate, they decided to sell humanity out. So that's good. <laughs> I knew it. I hope, every I hope everybody knows I'm just fooling around with that shit. So anyway, on this second Antarctic expedition, Bird would leave Little America and head further inland to what was called the Bowling Advance Weather Base, which was basically a shack in the ground. Um... According to uh, Bird's autobiography alone, which, again, as I mentioned earlier, it was ghost-written. So he, you know, told somebody, here's what happened, and then the ghostwriter dramatized the whole thing. So it, it reads like a fanciful adventure novel, even though it might have happened, might not have. It's definitely exaggerated. But nonetheless, on, on recorded history, Bird did spend five months in the dead of the Arctic winter operating this meteorological station, shack in the ground. He was allegedly observing the stars and the weather and living in ungodly temperatures. He would often be below zero, even inside his meteorological hovel. Um, on top of that, since it was indeed an Arctic winter, it was always dark. The sun had set and would not rise until spring. And on top of all of that, he was over 120 miles from the nearest other human being. Damn. So, me. <laughs> Just kidding. I have a party going on downstairs. It's cool. But why a man would put himself in these hellish conditions all alone for five months is beyond me because I literally work in a massive freezer. Like eight hours a day, I'm in sub-zero temperatures with modern freezer gear, and I can barely stand it. I have four hand warmers and a pair of gloves specifically designed for freezer work, and the damn thing still freeze solid after a couple of hours. Uh, 
Like, so when I imagine being at my job in that freezer all alone with no lights, no pals, and no way out, it it strikes me as pretty real. <laughs> Just put it that way. Yeah, I was um, unrelated to this. I was reading about some of those... Um, Antarctic stations, which are literally just a shack, and apparently a couple of the British ones, they actually like insul- they figured out insulation techniques that were like too effective, and they were actually like uncomfortably warm inside. There was, really? was yeah, if you turned the heating on through the you know did put stoked the stove or whatever, they actually got uncomfortably warm. But there was no way to, like, adjust it down to a level that wasn't uncomfortably warm unless you turned it off, in which case it would, you know, go to negative whatever. <laughs> that Jeez. just sounds awful well, being in there for months. It's like, ah, do I want to be in the freezy part or the really, really burny part? Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, well, thank you for sharing. <laughs> but, uh, Bird was supplied for six months, and... It, it was just a shack in the ground, but it also had, like, two snow tunnels to uh, supply depots. Um, he had a bunk, a chair, a phonograph, some books, food and water supplies, and a pipe. And according to his autobiography, these limitations taught him how little a man needs to survive his work. Uh, or to, I'm sorry, to survive in this world. Wow, that's just a straight typo. I'm not even drunk or anything. Here's a quote from his, his uh, ghost-written book. <clears throat> it occurred to me then that half the confusion in the world comes from not knowing how little we need. He's right, you know. Interestingly, Bird reported to his ghostwriter that the solitude of this experience rather elevated him. In one anecdote, Bird said that he basically stopped listening to radio reports from the outside world because they depressed him. Oh, wow. <laughs> this, is, this is getting a little bit too relatable. I know, right? So he's in the Arctic wilderness, freezing, and he says, I, I stopped watching the news because it was depressing. Um, in fact, when he heard the stock market had crashed while he was gone, he was depressed for weeks. Um, and the lesson he says that he learned from this, that he was... Um, the lesson that he learned from this was to no longer ask for news of the um, from the outside world. So he, had, he was in contact with uh, Little America, and they could talk to him, but he couldn't talk back. He could only send back telegraphs. Um, he's, he sent them a telegraph that just said fake news. <laughs> um, so yeah, he said he, he turned off the news and when he did that, he felt way better and even started to enjoy not knowing what was going on up there. So again, our lesson for today is to stop watching the news. Unfortunately, about two months into this expedition, Bird met with great peril. His stove was mal- Jesus, these people are loud. Uh, his stove was malfunctioning and was leaking small amounts of carbon monoxide into his shack in the ground. If he put the stove out, he would die. If he left it on, he would go mad and die. So basically, he had to let the stove run and open the door now and then to let out the gas, preventing him from consistent sleep and also preventing him from consistent heat. And he went on for, with this for like two months, deciding not to call for help as he didn't want men risking their lives in the dead of the Arctic winter to replace a stove. Um, but the men back in Little America could detect that something was wrong as very strange transmissions began to come from the advanced base. Um, he was basically drunk telegraphing people, and they were like, we gotta go help him out. Um, so a rescue mission was attempted three times, and the first two attempts failed due to cold and darkness and equipment failure. But the third succeeded, and on arriving at the advanced base, the men discovered a very sick, very bearded, and very cold Admiral Bird. 
They waited with him there until a medevac, uh, medevac plane arrived, at which point they dragged him out of his hole, took him back to his base, and gave him magical hot chocolate, which warmed him right down to his toes. That, I made that part up. <laughs> I was gonna say, was it just like straight up drugs? Because, you know, old-timey medicines, like, oh, you're coughing, have some cocaine. Yeah, yeah. Probably. <laughs> magical hot chocolate. Warmed him right down to his toes. There's definitely amphetamines involved there. Anyway, so this happened in 1934, and after returning to America, Bird spent a few months settling back into normal life. Four years went by. And in 1938, Bird was invited to Germany to discuss his participation in a German Arctic expedition. German leadership at this time, operating under the Fed Reich, had decided to launch what was called the Neuschwabenland. Is that how you say it? Yeah, that's fine. How do you actually say it? You're no, the one no, who that speaks was good. German. No, no, that was fine. That was fine. No Schwabenland. No Schwabenland? I don't know why they exactly are naming any part of the Arctic after Schwabenland. Um, because, you know, I've, I've driven through there. It didn't really look like the Antarctic to me, but, you know, I wasn't there. I don't know what it looked like in 1938. Well, what does Swabia actually look? Schwabia, whatever. What's it actually look uh, like? It's just... Kind of like most of Germany, you know, not a lot of big mountains, but just some hills, some nice trees, a lot of farmland. It's actually funny. Um, Swabia is the sort of the West Virginia of the Middle Ages. Like if you wanted to make a joke about people being like really, really sort of dumb and backwards in mi the Middle Ages, you made it about them being Swabian. I didn't know that. Interesting. Yeah. Don't want to be a Swabian. Hmm. Cotton swabs. I don't know. Something about Q-tips. <laughs> There's a very, very dank meme that runs on the show about Q-tips, and it's because of James. But it doesn't matter. So anyway, they're going to be doing the Neuschwabenland expedition. And the official reason given for this expedition was to open up a new avenue for Germans to harvest whale oil, as the country was importing 200,000 metric tons of the stuff every year, primarily from countries that would eventually be allied against them during World War II. And with this World War II on the horizon... Germany was essentially trying to kick its addiction to foreign imports and become self-sufficient. The unofficial reason that Germany wanted to expand its scientific interests in Antarctica, just like the rest of the West appear to be doing... Um, oh my god, I totally flubbed that line. That was the unofficial reason, that they were trying to expand their scientific interests. But the uh, the market reason was that they, they needed to get oil from elsewhere. Wait, so which, which one was the official reason? The official reason was that they were trying to expand their... Um, resource. Scientific, okay, okay. I was yeah. The unofficial reason was that they were like, oh yeah, but we also want to do like scientific stuff here and you know study. And we want to see what the what the Americans are doing down there. We want to see what the British and you know everybody else. What are they doing down there? Um, but yeah, they wanted to they wanted to have a scientific expedition. And Admiral Byrd was invited to advise slash go on this mission, but he refused because again, this was a time when. Lines were being drawn, you know, people had loyalties, there was still something like patriotism in the air, so he was like, yeah, like, fine, do your German thing, but I'm with America, so fuck off. Yeah, that was very different, very different days. Anyway, so, instead of going with Germany to settle Neuschwabenland, um, Bird prepared for his third Antarctic expedition. This expedition was officially funded by the United States Navy, the State Department, the Department of the Interior, and the Treasury. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Antarctica yep. is not in the interior of the United States. <laughs> oh! That's what you think. 
Also, <laughs> is, this, is this the one where they had that ridiculous fucked up vehicle that like... We're gonna years? get there. Don't oh. you dare. Okay. okay. Don't you dare. Don't okay. you dare. Don't you dare. <laughs> I'm literally two paragraphs from talking about this thing. All right. Okay, good. Because it was a fuck. <laughs> Well, again, I just want to underline that this is an expedition that wasn't funded by, like, independent elites, people who liked the idea of exploring. This was funded by the government. All right? no, so organized elites. Yeah, yeah, so organized, um, converged elites, one might say. So after Bird and his friends had gone north, then south, and discovered that there was nothing there but, you know, nothing at all there, but ice, snow, and just a really clear view of the stars, the powers that be worldwide decided not only to send more expeditions to look at the penguins, but to redouble their efforts and send government-sponsored missions to the Arctic. The jingoistic private expeditions were over. Now the governments were getting involved. Oh, sorry, that PBR came up. <coughs> anyway, and they threw not only massive amounts of government cheese at these tasks, they, spent, they sent military and intelligence units to set up base camps during World War II. Which is very suspect. Mm, they were trying to get to the Stargate. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, so this mission... You, you joke. You joke! I'm just kidding. Alright, so this mission would be equipped with a vehicle known as the Antarctic Snow Cruiser. Or the Penguin. <laughs> they were very creative. Um, this was a vehicle that was 55 feet long, 19 feet wide, and 12 feet high. It had an estimated range of 5,000 miles, a maximum, <laughs> a maximum speed of 30 miles per hour, and was designed to be self-sufficient for over a year in the harshest of extreme conditions. Warm engine coolant circulated throughout the cabin, heating the thing so well that the crew reported that they barely needed any blankets in the onboard bunks. There was a kitchen that doubled as a dark room. This thing was like pretty sophisticated looking. But the only problem with the cruiser was that the wheels were as smooth as a freshly plucked tomato. The cruiser, after being transported around the world to the Arctic, rolled off the delivery ship and immediately dug itself three feet into the snow. <laughs> because the, the tires had no treads. They were like balloons. I mean, they had all this cool technology where they could re retract the tires up into the machine so they could warm up and the rubber would be preserved. But the tires themselves were useless in the snow. So this is this is the thing I don't get because all successful vehicles in the ice up to this point had run on tracks. Yeah. So yeah. why is it they're like, oh, we're gonna make the most advanced, technologically amazing machine for the ice. We're not gonna use the thing that's worked. I have a theory. Go I on. I have a theory, and I'll only be able to explain it once we get to the end of this this absolutely crazy bullshit episode. You'll have to remind me, but I okay. have a theory. Okay. All right, so they have these smooth tires, um, but they also have, you know, wheel chains, so they install some chains on the wheels, and the crew discovered that the thing still couldn't get sufficient traction except for when it was going backwards. <laughs> so they drove it 92 miles inland, but it was all completely in reverse. <laughs> And so, eventually, they had to abandon the fucking thing in the middle of nowhere, and I think it was, like, 15 years later, an expedition came back and found it because somebody had stuck a bamboo pole in the ice, and they dug it out, and they opened it up, and it was like a time capsule, which is pretty weird. Uh, there were, like, half-burned cigarettes in the cup holder. Like, like, I'm not even joking about that. Like, they found... 
cigarettes, accessories, things that people accidentally left behind, all in the same place, frozen in time. Very monster, monster energy drink and half a Slim Jim still in the driving <laughs> cab. White monsters, always. Yes, white monsters. So anyway, <clears throat> the the uh, the trip was allegedly cut short due to the oncoming war, and Admiral Byrd was called into service in 1941. Um, to do things, I suppose. I really didn't look into it, because I don't care. Um, and we're going to glaze over this all anyway, because nobody cares about some piddly little war. We're talking about Antarctica. Come on. So after the war in 1946, Byrd was appointed officer in charge of the Antarctic Developments Project. He was to perform his fourth expedition to Antarctica. In fact, the largest Antarctic adventure ever ventured up to that time. This expedition was designed by Admiral Byrd and carried out by Rear Admiral Dick Cruzen. I'm, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. <laughs> All right, I'm about to take like 10 shots, okay? So, Commanding Task Force 68, <laughs> Dick Cruzen took charge of 13 ships. Freemasonry confirmed. I'll take a shot. All right, hold on. Shot taken. 33 aircraft. Illuminati confirmed. Take a shot. Oh. And 4,700 men, which, if you know, Gematria encodes to 11, so Illuminati double confirmed. <laughs> Take a shot. Oh my god. Seamus, what have you done to us? Well, I guess it was my fault. The only drinking game I had is Illuminati confirmed. So anyway, this operation was huge in scale compared to prior Arctic expeditions. Did and you, it was did known. You have to, did you have to put "huge" in all caps, like right under the word "dick"? If you, I'm just, I just see both those words just popping out of the, out of the script. I put it there for emphasis. Calm down. We don't even have a script, schizo. <laughs> Dick <laughs> so anyway, this cruising. Was a, Dick cruising. So this, uh, <laughs> this, this operation conducted by Dick cruising and Rich Burr. <laughs> Hold it together, man. <laughs> I was gonna say, I, I don't even know which direction to run with the jokes. With just, just, just be like water, as Bruce Lee says, or whatever. Okay. I mean, I am tempted to lie on the floor at this point. Okay. <laughs> so this, this, this operation was known as Operation High Jump. I don't know if you've heard of it, but I've heard of it. I've heard of it. So envision with me, and you won't have to because I, I put two pictures in here for your drunk ass. Um, envision with me the difference here. So, Bird's original expeditions up to this point involved, like, wooden ships, sled dogs, and sometimes, like, a plane that they can put you, together in the- Can you hear me eating cookies, by the way? <laughs> no. Because I found- Just... I, I found a box of cookies that my- one of my friend- my friend's wife made a bunch of cookies and gave me some, and I completely forgot about them, and I've just rediscovered them while we were recording here. <laughs> Okay, I was trying to make a point, and then and then you were eating. Okay, carry yeah, these, on. Man, carry. These, these cookies are fucking amazing. Uh, I'm happy for you. So I'm trying to I'm trying to draw a contrast here. Okay, so birds okay. expeditions to this point involved literally wooden ships, sled dogs, and planes that they assembled when they got there. But Operation High Jump involved over four thousand people, soldiers mostly. An aircraft carrier, a command ship, two destroyers, two icebreakers, two seaplanes, two supply ships, two fuel tankers, six helicopters, six flying boats, and a fucking submarine under the command of Rich Bird and Dick Cruzen. If you look here in the not script, which we don't have, I have included no, a comparison. I, 
I think I found the best avenue for the joke, since you, we did talk about some of the stereotypes of the modern Navy. I'm sure we could make something out of dick cruising and the modern Navy. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that was, that was probably a pretty tasteless Navy joke earlier, but they're not wrong. Speaking of, um, <laughs> speaking of, uh, one of these helicopters would eventually crash into the ice because the rotors froze up or some shit. But yeah, if you look at those two pictures, do you see do you see those pictures? No, oh, I yeah, I see them. I see them. Yeah, that is the diff. That's the difference twenty years can make. Look at that technology, crazy. Yeah. So anyway, the official reasons for this mission, according to the Navy, were as follows: number one, training personnel and testing equipment in frigid condition, uh, frigid conditions. So they wanted to like see what happens when things were really cold. That's the official ex explanation. Two. This is important. Consolidating and extending the United States' sovereignty over the largest practicable area of the Antarctic continent. This was publicly denied as a goal even before the expedition ended. So, you know how you were making a joke earlier about it not being America? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, yeah, I, don't, yeah. I, don't, I don't remember, but I'm pretending I do. Okay, okay. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's America at this point. <laughs> we, we own land in Antarctica. All right. And people are screaming downstairs right now. I apologize. It's it's starting to get ridiculous. Now, it's so number fine. three. See, see what they think about the Stargate. Uh, they already know about it. They're they're not thrilled. They just they just got their uh, they got their um, what's the name? Sailor Jerry, Sailor, whatever. Anyway, so number three on this list was I they really don't know what you're talking about. It's rum, Sailor Jerry. Um, I don't drink rum. Okay, Jeez. I know you're not a pirate. Uh, well, not that kind of pirate, anyway. All right, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Number three, did, they wanted to determine the feasibility of establishing, maintaining, and utilizing bases in the Antarctic and investing possible base, investigating, sorry, possible base sites. Ah yes, very based. Very based. <laughs> Yeah, they wanted to get based in Africa. I don't know what else what else you could ask. So, anyway, number four, developing techniques for establishing, maintaining, and utilize, utilizing air bases on ice. Um, because if you think about it, there's a lot of considerations you have to well, consider when you're building on ice as opposed to the ground, right? Um, they wanted to pay particular attention uh, to how they could apply the techniques they learned in Antarctica to, you know, basically building things in Greenland and in, at the North Pole as well. Number five, they wanted to amplify existing data stores. Oh, which... install, install an SSD, man. Changes your life. Yeah. <laughs> Number six, and this is the last one, Illuminati confirmed. Fuck. I have to take a shot. Okay. <clears throat> I'm not taking shots. I'm taking sips. I got a glass of whiskey. It's rather sizable. Wait, wait you uh, haven't been taking shots? I mean, I've been taking large sips from one glass. I'm not going to pour a shot every time I say Illuminati confirmed. Uh, oh, does that mean I have to take a fucking shot? I'm not going to do it. All right, I, I got to get through this. We're I mean, almost there. All right, so you did say it. Fuck you. Right, Seamus deserves this, man. He did wait for like six months. All right. <clears throat> Number six, the last one. The supplementary objectives of the... They wanted to uh, complete supplementary objectives of the Nanook expedition. Which I looked into. And it's really fucking freaky. Um, so what was the Nanook expedition? Oh, you know, nothing. It was just a mission designed to build a special tower in a place you might have heard of. Um, does the name Thule ring a bell? It, it's Thule. Thule? Thule? Thule. 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 I looked it up. Thule. It's Thule. Thule. Whatever. It's Thule. 
Well, okay, so where have you heard the word Thule before? You know, mm -hmm. Ulti Ultima Thule, furthest Thule. It's in the ancient world. It's the conception of sort of whatever continent lies furthest north. Right, okay. Yeah, so they built it in Kanaak. Kanaak? Kanaak. How do you say that? I don't, I don't know this word. Okay. That's a that's a name. That's the place. They changed the name Thule to Kanak. I think it's because it's a it's a um it's a native word for the same thing. Does that make sense? Like they called it Thule they called it Thule because that was the western word for it and then they changed it to Kanak because it was the native word for it. But anyway, here's the tower they built. I put a little picture in here. Look how freaky that thing is. Um it it was a wireless that's tower that what? It's covered. Is that ice it's covered in? Yeah, it's ice. Pretty freaky. Mm. I mean, just in the middle of nowhere, there's just this massive tower that's like studded with ice. Um. So anyway, yeah. You know, I really, um, I really wish the uh, the Mad Trapper would make like a cameo appearance. I wish he would, but we're in Greenland and he was in Canada or whatever. S same thing. So, yeah. Okay. I guess so. So anyway, Operation Hydrump. 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 <laughs> I'm so fine. You, I'm, usually I mute my mic when I know I'm about to lose it, but that one caught me by surprise. <laughs> so Operation High Jump, uh, High Jump was about establishing a presence in both Antarctica and in the northern Ar Arctic, Ar Ugh, Arctic Circle, specifically in Greenland. The operation would take about eight months total, and the majority of happenings would occur in Antarctica. This absolute armada of ships and one submarine, a, hel a bunch of helicopters and some planes, loaded with equipment, vehicles, and soon-to-be suicided personnel arrived in the Ross Sea on December 31st, 1946. What happened during this operation leaves a lot of room for speculation, as most of it is still confidential or redacted in whatever documents we do have about it. So the result of it, however, was a very changed rich bird. After the cessation of operations, Bird went on record in 1947 in a Chilean newspaper known as El Mercurio. El Mercurio. I don't know how to say it. Doesn't matter. It's the Mercury. So here's a quote from the paper. <clears throat> Admiral Richard E. Bird warned it, and this isn't obviously in, in Spanish, but just... It's an English translation. Admiral Richard E. Byrd warned today that the United States should adopt measures of protection against the possibility of an invasion of the country by hostile planes coming from the polar regions. The Admiral explained that he was not trying to scare anyone, but the cruel reality is that in the case of a new war, the United States could be attacked by planes flying over one or both poles. This statement was made as part of a recapitulation of his own polar experience. In an exclusive interview with International News Service, not to be trusted, <laughs> talking about the recent, uh, recently completed expedition, Bird said that the most important result of his observations and discoveries is the potential effect that they have in relation to the security of the United States. The fantastic speed with which the world is shrinking, recalled the Admiral, is one of the most important lessons learned during his recent Antarctic exploration. I have to warn my compatriots that the time has ended where we were able to take refuge in our isolation and rely on the certainty that the distances, the oceans, and the poles were a guarantee of safety. Now, what would cause him to have such a fear of these planes coming from the poles? The Stargate. What? 
You're not, yeah, you're, not you're not red-pilled enough. <laughs> we should have made Antarctica the word we had to drink on. Oh, God. Yeah, you mentioned that? We would be dead by now. So, anyway, you're gonna get a lot of Illuminati confirmed, alright? So, just hold on to your glass there. What did he see down there that made him wary of an invasion from the Poles? After all, he himself knew how treacherous the terrain actually was. Getting a squad of men to the pole was a highly awarded task just a few decades before, but now he's worried about a full-scale invasion? Like, just to keep, you know, 4,000 people going there, you had to have 13 planes. Or 13 ships, or 33 planes, whatever. But a full-scale invasion? Hmm. The penguins, man. He, what did he see? Well, we won't ever know, because he is... Well, we'll see. Alright, so here's the end. After Operation High Jump, Bird would be put in charge of Operation Deep Freeze 1. Um, a mission to establish a permanent U.S. presence in Antarctica, as everywhere else. This operation is still in effect today, just under different names. In 1999, Illuminati confirmed... Take a shot. The Navy transferred this op to the Air Force and its contractor, Raytheon Polar Services. Hmm. Overseeing... I know, I know. Overseeing operations today are the Air National Guard Detachment 13, Freemasonry confirmed. Take a shot. And none other than the 13th Air Force confirmed, I say. <laughs> you want to hear something funny? Yes. They manage operations from Christchurch, New Zealand. <laughs> I'm not saying anything. <laughs> this, uh, this base was indeed established during Deep Freeze 1 in Antarctica, but this would be the last time Rich Bird would fly south for the winter. He spent only one week in the Antarctic and went home tired on February 3rd, 1956. A year later, on March 11th, 311 Illuminati confirmed. Nineteen fifty-six. Doesn't does that not break down into some sort of weird code you've you've determined? No, March 11th. It's 311. They like threes, elevens, thirteens, and nines and sixes. No, no, the so. 1956. Did that not break down into any sort of code? It's nineteen fifty. It's nineteen fifty-seven. No, no, I was done the previous line. We went a whole oh, paragraph without it. Fifty-six. A... So two, three, five, six. Uh, let's see, five. And 16. No, doesn't doesn't come in anywhere. Yeah. My liver oh, well. thanks you. <laughs> so anyway, Byrd, Admiral Byrd, was one of the most decorated men in the history of the Navy. He had 22 citations and medals and was a very special boy indeed. He was a lifelong Freemason of Federal Lodge Number 1 in Washington, D.C. and had a moon crater named after him. And he had this monument erected in his name in New Zealand following his death. That's you see that? Not a, that's not a really cool looking monument. Like It's a black pyramid. Like, couldn't they have done something better? Like, geez. He's a Freemason! <laughs> what? It's not Bro. even like a good pyramid. It's like a lame, shitty pyramid. The angles are all wrong. The aggles are all wrong? Oh, God. All right, we should talk about the fun stuff. The, the stuff Admiral Byrd... Now, I think I am drunk enough for this. <laughs> so, Admiral Byrd is an icon in the conspiracy world. And really, just pick a conspiracy and you'll probably end up reading about him at some point. 
The most famous report, though, is probably his alleged secret diary that was confiscated by the government, allegedly following his death. And which uh, is contained an admission that on, uh, on his flights to both the North and South Poles, um, that on his flights he encountered some very strange phenomena. That sounded like a banshee shrieking in the background. What the fuck? Sorry. I think it was anyway. a car passing. Okay. So, anyway. The, the, uh, the diary alleges, particularly, that Admiral Byrd might have flown into the hollow earth. <laughs> Tell so, me more. I, I, I won't read the alleged... The... Act, the, the alleged actual document about the truth about Hollow Earth, but I will summarize. So if you want to go read this copy pasta, you, the only place you can find it is on DuckDuckGo, um, but not Google for some reason. So basically, in this alleged diary entry, Bird reports that the reason he never made it all the way to the North Pole is that there isn't one. <laughs> so, according to this alleged report, as his plane approached what should have been the icy cap with a barber pole sticking out of it, the land simply began to change. From icy plains to warm forests and swamps populated by massively oversized animals, including what he described as a mammoth. Um, oh, and here's my theory, by the way, about the Arctic Exploration Vehicle. So the reason it had smooth tires was that it was an amphibious vehicle design, uh, designed and tested in swampland. Why? Did you, did, did you make that connection? Boop, boop. Because Bird saw Bird saw swamps when he was flying into the Hollow Earth, and so they had to make okay, this. Okay, see, now I I buy the Hollow Earth thing and Bird flying around or whatever, but he doesn't sound like a dumbass. So why would he not plan for it to have to, you know, cross however many fuck ton hundreds of miles of goddamn ice first? You're right. You're right. You're right. So my theory is bullshit, but that's okay think, because I'm just gonna I'm just gonna chalk this up. To, well, a, fr a phrase my, my dad always used. My dad worked for the government, and he always used to just use this great phrase whenever something was, like, kind of worked. Like, it, it, it sort of met the expectations, but was still kind of crappy. He used to say, well, it's good enough for government work. Ah, yes, I've heard that one before. That's a great motto. Anyway, so let's continue our story about Bird. So, yeah, he was flying over the ice cap, and then it turned into forests, swamps. He saw a mammoth, a bunch of very large animals. Um... Bird and his uh, pilot, which was at the time Floyd Bennett, who was, of course, killed, um, they started to get really nervous and they wanted to turn back, um, but they lost control of their plane! And the plane was basically flying itself! And that's Alien when they noticed... Ray. You're just... You're ahead of the game, man. That's when they noticed UFOs outside their windows. And they concluded that these levitating alien carriages were guiding their plane into the hollow earth. Long story short, they were landed near a golden city, and they met a very, specifically, I'm not making this up, a very Germanic-looking people, who gave them nice things to drink. Presumably that magical hot chocolate I mentioned earlier. Aja, why don't, why don't we have the, the magic Hollow Earth German drinks? We'll get there. <laughs> like, wow, These Germ I was happy with this Tullamore Dew until you mentioned the possibility of Hollow Earth <laughs> German drinks. Jeez, now this, I don't want this shit anymore. Well, the secret is it's PBR. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, so they met the, they met these people, these German-looking people, and they said, we will take you to meet our master. And that's what they call him, the master. And so Bird alone was permitted to meet with this man. 
who told him, and he was he was like one of the most beautiful people he'd ever seen in his life. In fact, all these people were the most beautiful people Bird had ever seen in his life. And they kind of glowed like the rest of the city. So the master told Bird that he alone was cool enough to relay this information. Which is that um, the ali these alien people had been watching the human race for a long time. And basically that humanity is a danger to itself and that if it doesn't dismantle its nuclear arsenal, another dark age will set in. That's what the master tells Admiral Byrd. Makes sense. And in this, yeah, and in this story, Byrd agreed to bring back a message about the truth of the Hollow Earth and uh, to call for peace in order that these Agarthans, as they were called, might share their technology with humanity. And allegedly, Byrd agreed and was quickly ushered out as soon as he said, I'll do it. Um, and when he got out, he found his, co or his pilot. He was the navigator, remember? He finds his pilot. He finds his plane refueled. And ready to take off. And they do. And as Bird and his pilot fly away from this paradise, they hear a through their radio, loud and clear, a hearty Off Vita Sane! <laughs> there you go. Damn, I want to know about the hollow earth fuel, though. Like, what's its octane? Does it have detergent qualities? Like, I want to get some of this for my car. Yeah, well, see, the thing is they have mastered levitation technology, so they don't need it. So I'm wondering why they would still have fossil fuels, Eddie, for a plane. Who knows? Hmm. But anyway, so this this crazy story is basically the only reason Richard Bird is still a decently well-known name. Is there anything to it? Uh, I don't know. But Richard Bird himself is still very interesting in a way. There's enough weird stuff going on with him uh, to have to uh, warrant a second look. So right? did you... Did you get any more about? I want to know about this this diary and where where the sources are coming from here of its alleged contents. I mean, if you're if you're asking me to provide you with sources, the only thing I can point you to is websites that look like they were developed in the '90s. Um, but it's like I, I said, only it, it, visit websites that look like they were developed in the '90s. I might have favorited it. I can wait. Have you not read about this? I mean, I've I've heard I've heard mutterings on the dark corners of the internet, but this isn't really my wheelhouse. I'm telling you, just just Google uh, or not Google, sorry, use DuckDuckGo to search for Admiral Bird Hollow Earth Diary. You'll find some weird shit. Um, but yeah, like I was saying, I I don't know if this is real. It's definitely the rumor that kept him popular. Um, but as for me. With the way things are these days, and with it being harder and harder to separate fact from fiction, I believe! And I personally can't wait for Hollow Earth Agarthans to at long last swoop in, and finally rescue us from Jeb Bush's iron grasp. <laughs> A glorious day it will be. Yep, and that's all I have to say about that. That is everything I wrote about Admiral Byrd, and it was just for the Drunkisode, so I picked something absurd, or one might say a bird. <laughs> oh that my god. That was a stretch, even for... Well, I've lost count of how many glasses in, but that was still a stretch. Man, you're you're playing it cool. I'm, I'm impressed. I'm like one beer in, and, well, okay, shit. That was a large, large glass of whiskey. But yeah, that's all I got. Did you have anything you wanted to talk about, or discuss? Um, well, I was doing a little bit of research on my own on Antarctica, and I found... A very distressing fact. Mm. Um, there are not one, but two Wells Fargo ATMs on the continent of Antarctica. And to me, this is an abomination. What the fuck? 
Like, they we cannot allow Wells Fargo to get its little tentacles into Antarctica, because they're going to they're gonna get to the Hollow Earth, and they're going to start, like, signing those poor Hollow Earth Agarthans up for bank accounts they didn't ask for, and it's just going to be bad. We need to destroy them, Aaron. Well, if we've learned anything from the Wyatt Earp series, we've learned that Wells Fargo is the bad guy, so yeah, you're right. I will be right. leaving immediately for Antarctica to commit undisclosed <laughs> acts against those ATMs. <laughs> Do it! <laughs> but I want to go. I, I, I want to see the ice wall. I, I, I mean, there's a lot of stuff we need to see there. I can't wait to prove Flat Earth. It's going to be so cool. I mean, I just want to find the, you know, the the lost the lost city from 20 million years ago from the H.P. Lovecraft's The Mountains of Madness. Wait, there was a lost city in the story? What else are you hiding from me? Yeah, so that's so the whole thing. They they have their little reconnaissance plane, and they actually find that when they go further inland than anyone had before, that they find this city that like died twenty million years ago, and it was basically basically sort of Hollow Earth type people. Or what is well, it like Atlantis or Shambhala or some shit like that? It's the it's one of the cities of, of an elder creature race thing millions of years before humanity i was kind of hoping that's where we were going with this but um but yeah no, great great story by the way mountains of madness i mean i'll tell you i'll tell you what i held back because there's so many theories about admiral bird including that he was battling this is like, literally the last episode you should have held back on all right all right i won't hold back then i'll just i'll just go off the cuff there are stories about admiral bird encountering like hollow earth nazis and like battling them in the water, and like he came back and filed a report, and he said, "Guys, the Germans aren't defeated; they own the Hollow Earth." And then, like, um, they called him crazy or some shit, or and he didn't report it, or I, I don't remember the exact story. There's all kinds of speculation, including that um, there's a 13th flag in some UN building that's for a, a country that nobody has heard of called New Berlin, which is allegedly in the Hollow Earth. Um, it's why there's no 13th floor on most skyscrapers in New York City, because there's only one building in New York City that has a 13th floor, and it's like some UN, NATO, you know, global bullshit-related thing, and the 13th floor, you step out of the elevator, and there's a flag for something called the New, the New Berlin, which is allegedly a hollow-earth city. I mean, I don't know. There's tons of bullshit online. You can read forever about this shit. Illuminati confirmed. Yep. Drink. That does it for my whiskey. Ugh. <laughs> Seamus didn't ask for this. <laughs> oh, God. I, I think what he actually asked for was a Russian. He did but ask we're for... Do, we're doing a yeah. Russian next time. Yeah. I've got we, a, we, we had to do Bird Drunk, because there's no way I could have talked about New Berlin. <laughs> well, with that... um, Do you think it's time to, to head to the surface and maybe sober up and have a Hot Pocket? I, I think I think that is exactly what the situation calls for, minus the sobering up part. All right, right, right. You're probably gonna have that fifth class here. Going you already to. have the fifth class. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's head to the service. George, if you could pick one song to play while you red pill people on the Hollow Earth, what would you pick? Well, I've I've been going back to my roots recently, and not not my you know actual roots in 
18th century Pennsylvania. Um, but my uh, my internet roots, and I've actually been listening to a lot um, the old Dragostad Dinte, you know, the, the Numa Numa song that was popularized by the sort of jiggly fat man dancing. I've been listening to that like on repeat nonstop, uh, probably not doing great things for my psyche, but boy, is it a good time. And so honestly, since we've just entered the world of absurdity anyway, I think just a constant soundtrack of Numa Numa. <laughs> is the, is the way to go for the hollow earth uh evangelism yeah i, I don't even you? know what well if i had to pick a song to play while red pilling people on the hollow earth i think mm, Hi, i'd yes, play the that hollow song. pill the hollow pill <laughs> it's, oh, pill oh that's casing. even perfect because a hollow pill would have nothing in it because you're not sort of selling them anything you're just revealing the reality Oh, oh my god. I can feel my crown chakra opening right now. My pineal <laughs> gland has been fully activated. Um, now, if I had to pick one song to red pill people about the Hollow Earth to, um, uh, probably Tuva Groove. <laughs> That's that Mongolian throat, throat singing. Uh, throat, throat singing that you mentioned earlier. Have you ever heard Tuva Groove? I, I haven't, no. I, I'm all about The Who. Have you listened to them? The H-U. Who? Yeah, not, no. not like the W-H-O, the H-U, no. The Who, it's a Mongolian throat singing band that incorporates like some elements of modern metal in them. It's pretty good. Oh, man. Well, I'm going to put Tuva Groove at the end of this episode, um, and I want you to listen to it because I'm probably going to remix it. Or not, well, yeah, definitely remix it, remaster it. I don't listen to our episodes. Well, I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today. If you hate us, you're probably right. So consider funding the show by becoming a patron on Patreon.com for as long as that fucking lasts. Or if Patreon is not your thing, drop us a little tip in Venmo. Our handle is at WTADP. We've been really, really encouraged by the number of people contributing to the show. Um, we've got some new patrons, especially our royal patrons who have been treating us really well. Um, provided us with not shit whiskey this episode. Um, and all donations will currently go to funding my expedition to destroy Wells Fargo's influence on the continent of Antarctica. And also to discover the ice wall and prove flat earth. <laughs> um, yeah, so anything you can give, guys, anything you can you can um, share, you know, share the episode, um, share any previous episodes that you liked, you can tell family members and friends about the show, anything you can do to help, it's greatly appreciated in these times. It's more and more important than ever to essentially rely on other people to tell you about your shit because advertising literally doesn't work anymore. You just have to get recommendations from people you know. Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. And with all that being said, we'll close out and let the Agarthans from Mongolia <laughs> play you out. Oh, <laughs> little 